Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs, sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Before we get going today, we have a little bit of housekeeping. Yeah, fun housekeeping. Hey, we're going to Spain. We are. We are. If you are listening to this in the summer of 2023, which is when we're recording it, this November, November 2nd through 9th, 2023, we are going to Barcelona. I'm really excited. I'm very excited. I am finally going to, you know, have my my um, weepy moment in Sagrada Familia and have my Gaudi extravaganza. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, here's the cool thing. You can come with us if you want. Yeah. We have a lot of fun things on the itinerary. It's a six-night trip. Uh, we are going to have some tapas tours, and we are going to go, as we said, Sagrada Familia, all kinds of fun things. You can go to defineddestinations.com. Uh, Defined Destinations is the company who arranges these tours for us. Uh, right on the front page, it says Barcelona, Spain, uh, November 2 through 9. You can click on that. Or you can go to defineddestinations.com slash Barcelona-2023 and get directly to it. Listen, this is going to be right after Halloween, and there's a gothic Barcelona tour, which is what's going to be my off-ramp. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, we get some questions about these, like how big is the group? Usually approximately 30 people, so it's a small group. We have a mix of planned activities and free time for people to either rest or explore on their own, whatever. We have had a great time both of the prior trips that we have done like this, and we are super excited about this one. Yeah, so come and join us if that all sounds good to you. We would love to see you there. And now we can hop into our episode. Um, so, Tracy, we've talked about the Olympics a few times on the show before. We have. We have even briefly touched on today's topic, but very briefly. Um, but I think it really merits more discussion because the 1904 Olympic marathon was, 
in the funniest way I can put it, a doozy. Listen, I'm going to confess, I wanted something light and breezy this time around because campaign finance was just a lot uh, and made me very sad. (laughs) This ended up making me really, really angry. So brace for that. Uh, In 1904, the U.S. hosted its first Olympics, and it was quite an event. And even that needs a little bit of setup because it was originally going to be in a different city than it ended up in. So that's where we're starting. So the modern Olympic Games came to be largely because a man named Pierre de Coubertin spearheaded the effort to get them going. We talked about all that in our live show that we recorded at the Dallas Museum of Art way back in 2016. That also ran as a classic in November of 2020. And that first modern Olympics that he launched in 1896 took place in Athens, Greece. The second one in 1900 took place in Paris. And then the 1904 Olympic Games were awarded to Chicago, Illinois. This was a huge achievement for the city because it meant that Chicago was going to be the first U.S. city to ever host the Olympic Games. Philadelphia and New York had also been contenders, but ultimately, they were passed over in favor of Chicago. But 1904 was also the year that the Louisiana Purchase Exposition was being planned in St. Louis. That expo had originally been planned for 1903, but it was delayed to give expo organizers a little more time to prepare. And that meant that the 1904 new date would be competing with the Olympic Games for attendees. St. Louis, by the way, absolutely also wanted the Olympics, and the Expo's organizing committee came up with what could definitely be perceived as kind of a snaky way of ensuring that their event was not eclipsed by Chicago's Olympics. The committee made a deal with the Amateur Athletic Union to hold their annual track and field competition alongside the Expo. The AAU had been founded in 1888, and it had gained in popularity to the point that it was really the most prominent athletic organization in the United States. And this deal meant that people who may have considered traveling to either the Expo or the Olympics would have both the Expo and a similar large athletic event in St. Louis. This is a time when, you know, people might not have had the funds to go to both events. And if they had to pick one for their vacation that year, You could get two-in-one in in St. Louis this way. This entire situation was punctuated by the fact that James Sullivan, who ran the AAU, had a history of conflict with Coubertin and had already tried to start his own international track and field association because he wanted to compete with the Olympics. This conflict and competition for attendees led Coubertin, who was president of the Olympic Committee, to move the games from Illinois to Missouri, although he really did not have high hopes for it in St. Louis. If you listen to our live show about Coubertin in the early Olympics, you've heard this quote already, but it's illustrative of his feelings on this matter, so we will use it again. Quote, I had a sort of presentiment that the Olympiad would match the mediocrity of the town. Coubertin stepped away from any active involvement in the St. Louis Games the month after the change of cities was announced, in no small part because of these ongoing clashes that he had with James Sullivan. 
Regarding the change of location for the games, the city of Chicago was described in newspapers as, quote, courteously agreeing to their transfer to St. Louis. This was also the second time that the Modern Olympics were held alongside an expo. The 1900 games that happened in Paris were staged in conjunction with the Paris Expo, and that had been a problem because the games really did not get the spotlight that Coubertin would have hoped, and a lot of the planning, which had been taken over by the Expo organizers, had been pretty sloppy. So there was concern about it happening in a similar fashion in St. Louis, and that concern was entirely valid. And also just from a planning standpoint, the decision to move these games came pretty late. Coubertin announced the change in February 1903, and the games were to start in July the following year. The Chicago location had been chosen almost two years before that change in May of 1901, so this really did mean that there was a very abbreviated schedule, even though there had been planning underway for the amateur athletic union events. To compound the potential for disaster, there really wasn't any real documentation for organizers to follow regarding how an Olympiad should run. Coubertin had managed both the 1896 and 1900 games according to his ideology of how they should work, but he didn't write any of that down, at least not in any form that he shared with other organizers. So with him essentially out of the picture for the 1904 games, this was a scenario where the people in charge were kind of making it up as they went on a very short timeline. This was not just a case of events being poorly organized. This Olympiad had a variety of events that were in extremely poor taste, and they really gave the 1904 Games a legacy of colonialism and racism. One of the things that the Expo Committee did was to try to intertwine the Games with the exhibitions at the Expo. So they were tying to the anthropology exhibits, the uh, Olympics and the Expo hosted what were called Anthropology Days. This was a two-day event with athletic competitions staged that were really racist. They pitted various groups of indigenous people from around the world that were being displayed in these anthropology exhibits against one another. This was not a case where something was accepted for the time. A lot of things that we think of as accepted for the time really weren't. And people called out these competitions as racist and gross as they were happening. If you've ever seen the quote by Coubertin that states, quote, it will, of course, lose its appeal when black men, red men, and yellow men learn to run, jump, and throw and leave the white men behind them, that's a direct response to this Anthropology Days competition, which Coubertin called an outrageous charade. This idea was the brainchild of none other than James Sullivan. James Sullivan, I'm not going to lie, emerges as one of the villains of this story. So, racist garbage events aside, there were plenty of other problems plaguing the 1904 St. Louis Games. Just as had been the case in Paris, the expo overshadowed the event. Newspaper write-ups of various specific sporting events, including the marathon that we're going to talk about today, called them things like the Exposition Marathon, rather than referencing the Olympics at all. Additionally, the Olympiad part of all of the festivities was not particularly well attended, not by spectators and not by athletes. 
Some of this was because the 1900 games had gone really poorly and people were just kind of suspicious of how the Olympics were going to work. Some of this was because many countries had been drawn into the conflict of the Russo-Japanese War, which started in February 1904 and was ongoing when the games began on July 1st. That war was still happening when the games finally ended in late November. Plus, St. Louis was just seen as remote, so foreign travelers were not as interested in attending. And while St. Louis was and is a major U.S. city, to people living outside the U.S., it didn't necessarily seem that way in 1904. And being so far from a coast meant it was just harder to get to. The way attendance shook out for athletes skewed the numbers really heavily for the U.S. participants. There were only 12 participating nations, the U.S., Australia, Switzerland, Austria, South Africa, Canada, Hungary, Cuba, Greece, France, Germany, and Britain. There were 630 athletes who competed, and 523 of those were from the U.S., so the big majority. This led to a situation where some events only included U.S. athletes as competitors, This was the first Olympics where the gold, silver, and bronze medal system was implemented. Before this, it was only the first-place winners who took home medals, and those were gold. The U.S., unsurprisingly, took the vast majority of the medals at all levels. Of the 95 gold medals awarded, the U.S. took 76 and 78 silvers and 77 bronzes for a whopping 230 medals total. Those numbers have kind of shifted over the years due to some of the events being contested. Numerous medals credited to the U.S. have actually been contested right into the 21st century because in some cases, immigrants who were not U.S. citizens were entered by the U.S. team and their home countries want those medals to be credited to the athletes' original nations. But the event that was perhaps the most unusual, startling, and difficult to even contemplate, and there is room for plenty of additional adjectives, as you'll hear, was the marathon. And we will talk about that after we pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. 
Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. Say goodbye to complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping and say hello to an advantage with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Every business faces challenges, but shipping shouldn't be one of them. So keep things simple with clear, upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges for Saturday deliveries, residential deliveries, or fuel. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there, helping you counter the rising costs of doing business with a budget-friendly alternative. And keep things reliable with on-time ground shipping, ensuring your shipments get to where they need to go while maintaining your hard-earned reputation. USPS Ground Advantage is your ticket to easy, cost-effective, and dependable shipping. It's the complete delivery service your business needs to rise above the competition. There's never been a better time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. mentioned some of the weirdness of the 1904 Olympic marathon in that live show we referenced earlier, including a little car ride one of the competitors took, but we did not get all of the many odd and often harrowing happenings of the race. Because there were a lot of strange things playing out that day, and it started with an odd assortment of competitors. There were several experienced marathoners on the start line, all of whom were from the U.S., Sam Miller, John Lorden, Arthur L. Newton, Michael Spring, and Thomas Hicks. One of them was expected to win. Meller had won the 1902 Boston Marathon. John Lorden won it in 1903. Michael Spring was the Boston Marathon's most recent champion. He had taken the prize earlier that year in April. And Newton had run the Olympic Marathon event in Paris. Thomas Hicks had two, and he had come in second. There were 32 runners on the start line on the afternoon of August 30th, but only four countries were represented, and the remaining 27 runners were really varied in their experience. There was another American competitor in the mix who had qualified by running a surprisingly short race. That was Fred Lors, who was a bricklayer who said he only had time to train at night. The race that got him into the games was a special event staged by the Amateur Athletic Union that's sometimes said to have been five miles. Other times it's said to have been seven. 
In either case, that's a much shorter distance than a qualifier would normally need today. Yeah, I read multiple accounts of it, and they (laughs) they describe it differently, so... uh, And I couldn't ever find one solid, like, here's even, like, a, a newspaper report that seems to have solid reporting going on, so that's what's up. South Africa was represented by two runners, Jen Tao and Jan Mashiani. Both were part of a group that had been sent by South Africa to reenact segments of the Boer War as an exhibit. They were both part of the Bantu-speaking Tswana people, and they had both been messengers during the war, a job that was all running. So they were both very well conditioned for the marathon, and they both ran it barefoot. Greece had 10 runners in the marathon, although none of them had trained for the race. They were pretty clear that they were there for fellowship with the other Olympians rather than any sort of attempt at winning. Runner John Furlow was Greek-American. Although his citizenship was in the U.S., he chose to run for Greece. Cuba was represented by a man named Félix Carvajal, who had fundraised the money to travel to the Games himself by staging a variety of demonstrations in Cuba. In one of those, he ran from one side of Cuba to the other in the course of 16 days. He also ran laps around City Hall in Havana as part of his efforts to drum up money. That was because he allegedly had been turned away from a requested meeting with the mayor, so he ran those laps to draw a crowd and get the mayor's attention. And that trick apparently worked because the mayor's office paid for his travel. Carvajal was a mailman by trade, but that doesn't really convey the endurance needed for the job. He was a post runner. He was constantly on the move and apparently ran a lot when he was doing his routes. Like the South African competitors, he had also been a messenger runner during military conflict, carrying messages for General Maximo Gomez in the Cuban War of Independence. There are a couple of different stories about Carvajal having money issues en route to St. Louis. One version says that the mayor didn't give him enough to cover anything but the fare he needed for transportation. Another version suggests that when he stopped in New Orleans on the way to the Olympic Games, he gambled all of his pocket money away. Regardless, Carvajal had to hitchhike and walk his way to the competition. He also didn't really get enough to eat. He was a pretty small guy, reportedly five feet tall and 100 pounds. He looked apparently scrawny when he got to the expo and the games. He also didn't have athletic clothes, and he ran in a white button-down shirt, a beret, and his trousers, which had been cut short either by Felix or by another competitor. That probably would have been American competitor Martin Sheridan. Uh, They were concerned, reasonably so, that he would overheat in this clothing. He also just wore normal shoes to run in. Yeah, yeah. there are pictures of him at the start line, and he looks essentially dressed for a day of business, perhaps, but his pants have been cut short. Um, he still has on, like, the full-length st- stockings underneath them, though. All right, uh, I'm going to give fair warning to any of our listeners who run because the course conditions that we're about to talk about are flat-out horrifying. And if you are not a runner, some of it's a little bit gross, although we're not going to get super graphic. So when the race started at 3.03 p.m., it was 90 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 32.2 degrees Celsius. So definitely not optimal running temperature. It was also very humid. 
The race started in the Olympic Stadium that was filled with an estimated 10,000 spectators. And then after five laps around the track, the runners were routed out onto the rest of the course, which was not today's regulation length of 26.2 miles. It was 24.85. At this point, the distance of the marathon was still being tweaked as organizers kind of sought the optimal distance. The course itself was made up of an assortment of challenging conditions. According to an account written by race official Charles Lucas, it included, quote, no less than seven hills varying from 100 to 300 feet high, some with long ascents and others with short ascents. Lucas wrote a book titled The Olympic Games 1904, which he published in 1905, and it's through his account that we have most of the information regarding what went on during the marathon uh, heads up if you go looking for this book. He also says some very racist stuff in it. Regarding this course, he noted that the one in St. Louis was, quote, the most difficult a human being was ever asked to run over. At Athens, the road from the battlefield of Marathon and that at Paris were boulevards compared to the course selected in St. Louis. The running route once outside the stadium was anything but uniform. Most of the segments of it were incredibly dusty because of this late part of the summer. Some of them were covered in loose gravel, and those dusty segments were brutal because although cars were still kind of a new and novel invention at this point, there were some leading the runners along the course as well as carrying race staffers and coaches alongside the runners. And those vehicles were kicking dust right into the runners' faces, while they were breathing heavily from exertion, so it wasn't like they couldn't inhale it. This dust also obscured their vision, and to top things off, this was not a closed course. So runners were competing while they were also looking out for street traffic and pedestrians. Hydration was a whole story unto itself. If you run a marathon today, you can reasonably expect at least eight water stations, They may or may not include the option of a sports drink with electrolytes. Some stops may even have quick energy fuel like gels or gummies, occasionally even chocolate. That was definitely not the case for the 1904 Olympics, though. There were only two water stations on the entire course. Two. (laughs) Not eight, two. Uh, And that is actually not reported in all of the accounts. Lucas mentions only one as being official. One was near the six-mile mark where there was conveniently a water tower, and that may or may not have been an official station. The other was at the 12-mile mark, which Lucas mentioned, where there was a well on the course. This meant that the runners had to go at least half the race without any water, and that well water did not agree with everyone who drank it. A lot of the runners had stomach issues after drinking it. That is all a terrifying prospect, but it becomes really infuriating because this lack of water stops was not something that happened because of poor planning. It was done to those runners on purpose. And that is because James Sullivan decided that this would be a good opportunity to run an experiment to see what dehydration would do to endurance athletes. I paused during my research and stomped around the house in a full-bore red rage for quite a while after reading Yeah, this... (laughs) could have killed people. It almost did. So despite all of these issues with the course, most of the runners persevered. When the race started, Fred Lors took the early lead. Thomas Hicks passed him after just a short while. 
John Lorden became nauseated and started to vomit and didn't complete the race. He was there for less than a mile. Within just a few miles, Miller was in the lead group and Lors and Hicks had fallen back. Despite Lorden's early dropout, the rest of the runners started fairly well. But things quickly fell apart, and we're going to talk about how after we pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. As the race left the stadium and got onto the dusty roadways, Fred Lors chugged along for nine miles, but then he started experiencing cramps. He was loaded into a support vehicle for transport, and he waved to crowds as he traveled the route back to the stadium. Once he had apparently dropped out, Hicks moved up a bit, but not enough to overtake the leaders. After the brief boost that they all got from the second or perhaps first water stop, right around that middle marker. As the mile markers reached into the teens, 
the field thinned out quite a bit. Sam Miller lost his lead, also due to cramps, which persisted to the point that he had to drop out. Another U.S. competitor, Henry Bali, stopped running and continued at a walking pace, but another of the U.S. runners, William Garcia, made it 19 miles before he just could go no further. The dusty conditions meant that he had been inhaling huge amounts of particulate as he ran. This took his toll, and he collapsed by the side of the course, Once he was spotted on the ground, race officials got him to emergency care. When Garcia was examined by a doctor, it was determined that he had taken in so much dust that he had damaged his esophagus and stomach and was hemorrhaging internally. This was to the point that his life was in danger. Because he had made it to medical care, his condition stabilized, he did eventually recover. Jen Tao of South Africa was chased by a dog at one point and ended up about a mile off course. He still managed to finish ninth. His fellow South African delegate, Jan Mashiani, came in 12th. Perhaps the only delightful runner's story in this race is that of Cuban runner Felix Carvajal. He may not have had proper attire, but he does seem like he had a good time. He stopped on occasion to chat with spectators. He asked some people at one point if he could have one of the peaches they were eating. They told him no, but he just took two of them and ran, uh, something that is characterized in accounts as playful and not criminal. Uh, Given the lack of supportive fluids on this course, this probably would have helped save him from some physical issues. But according to some accounts, he also picked some apples as he ran and ate those. Turned out those apples, though, were bad. They gave him terrible stomach cramps also. He took a brief nap before getting back up and finishing the race. I should say we don't have official documentation about that apple and nap part, but given other things we know about him, it really adds up. Although Hicks had started pretty strong and had done well for the first several miles, he started having some pretty serious issues well before the halfway point. When he reached the 10-mile mark, he was so dehydrated that he needed to be carried by two men, Charles Lucas, the race official who wrote the account of the race, and Hugh McGrath, who was one of the coaches that was uh, in the the supporting vehicles. They became his two-man crew for the remainder of the race. They refused him water, though, even when he begged, wanting to stay true to the rules of Sullivan's experiment. The most he got was a sponge with warm water daubed around his mouth. Hicks continued with support, literally, as his two crew members held him up from either side for parts of the race. You can find photos of him clearly being propped up. At the 12-mile mark, he got some water, which buoyed him for a while, but soon he asked for an assist. And this is where his team gave him an elixir to keep going that is just difficult to believe. This was egg white mixed with strychnine, which is a poison. At the time, minute doses of strychnine were believed to be a performance enhancer. The dose that was given to Hicks was a 60th of a grain. It seems to have helped. Uh, Hicks kept moving, although he was dispirited. While Hicks was being propelled along by his team, they witnessed Lors whip by them fresh as a daisy. The vehicle that had picked Fred Lors up when he had cramps had sputtered to a stop. All of the dust had caused it to stall. 
And at this point, Lors was feeling better, so he got out and started running again. Hicks's men reportedly saw this and yelled at Lors that he couldn't do that, but Lors reportedly told them he was just going to run back to the stadium and get help for that broken-down automobile. That was not what happened. When he got to the stadium, he ran a lap around the track, which is how the race finished, and then he crossed the finish line to the cheers of the crowd who all believed that he was the winner. Lors's so-called victory had thrilled the spectators who thought they had just seen the first U.S. Olympic marathon gold medalist finish the race. That culminated in another podcast subject, Alice Roosevelt, crowning him with the winner's wreath, almost, because someone in the crowd, and it's not known who, yelled that Lors had cheated. His big moment unraveled because it was something that he had not earned. He claimed he had just been joking about having won the race. Yeah. (laughs) Meanwhile... Hicks was still trying, but he was in very rough shape. He was reportedly pale. His eyes were described as dull and lusterless. His support team gave him another dose of egg whites and strychnine, this time with a brandy chaser. He was also bathed in warm water head to toe from a bucket that had been heated in the boiler of a steam engine car. Hicks kept going, but he also fell into a complete delirium. He was nearing the end, but he believed he had another 20 miles to go. After the last two hills, which were near the end of the race, which he walked up and then shuffled down, he reached the final mile, but he begged his trainers to just let him lie down. He also begged for food, and he was given two more egg whites with brandy, Although, when another runner offered him what is described in Lucas's record as beef tea, so I'm assuming that's like a light broth, he was not allowed to have it. While Lucas described Hicks as kind of checked out mentally, he also described his gait as, quote, running mechanically like a well-oiled piece of machinery. Hicks's finish was not the triumphant scenario that he was probably envisioning when he started the race. He was basically carried. His feet were moving, but the two men who had been with him at that point for more than 14 miles were physically holding him up. Hicks collapsed as he crossed the tape, falling into the arms of Thomas Riley, who was one of the coaches for the American team. The dehydrated Hicks reportedly weighed eight pounds less when he finished the race than when he started, and he was in really bad shape. It had taken him three hours, 28 minutes, 53 seconds to finish this grueling race, and he probably came close to dying on the course. When the race was over, he was too weak to receive his award. He did not leave the stadium area for an hour, and during that time, four doctors attended to him. During that time, there were other finishers. Albert J. Corey of Chicago came in second, Arthur Newton finished third, and Carvajal finished fourth. It's been estimated that Carvajal's various stops to chat and nap cost him about an hour of time, so he probably would have won had he not done that. And it's a pity that he finished out of the medal pool because he was probably the best athlete in the race. It's worth noting that he was also the only one out there who was totally alone. He didn't have any fellow countrymen. He did not have any support staff. He was just out having a run and seemingly enjoying himself along the way. 
He was described at the finish line as being quite fresh and energetic and in good spirits and just a lot livelier than any of the other athletes. Of the 32 men who started the race, only 14 of them finished it. Fred Lors was banned from the Amateur Athletic Union for life, but that ban did not hold. He continued to assert that he had just been playing by running that lap and crossing the finish line. Eventually, the AAU reinstated him. He won the Boston Marathon the next year. Charles Lucas made very clear in his book that he thought very little of Lors, who he thought had tainted the entire event with his foolishness. Hicks's win was contested by the Chicago Athletic Association, which had sent several runners for the U.S. team. And the charge there was that he had been helped so very much for the majority of the race that there really was no way to claim that he had won through his own stamina or power as a runner. But the Olympic referee who had paced Hicks by car throughout said that he won and that it was an honest win and that was the end of that. As for any scientific findings based on the experimenting done during the race, Lucas came to the conclusion that, quote, drugs are of much benefit to athletes along the road, which is, I don't know, a terrible conclusion to come to from that. Today, the 1904 marathon is considered the most chaotic such event in modern Olympic history. <sighs> I, have, I have so many things for behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have listener mail? I do. I have uh, two pieces again because one is very, very short. Uh, this first one is from Ben, who writes, Greetings. I loved your eponymous foods discussion on beef stroganoff, and I'm probably just piling onto a bunch of other comments, but I wanted to note that Russia is part of Europe. You mentioned the European influence as if Russia wasn't part of Europe a couple times. Um, this is actually funny because I remember growing up and I was always... I always got the, granted, I grew up during Cold War, so USSR mm-hmm, at the time, mm-hmm. Asian, <laughs> part yeah, of Asia. As but we were, it qualifies as both because yeah. parts of it are in Europe and parts of it are in Asia. So. As we were recording that, I had the same thought. And I was like, somebody's going to write to us about it really being in Europe. And it's, n- number one, these these boundaries are arbitrary and and largely made up, and a lot of them have to do with, like, commonalities related to language and culture, but also, like, that is very ill-defined and vague, and I've seen whole arguments about, uh, like, the underlying biases and things that are part of all of these divisions. But yeah, as I was, as we were recording, I was like, it's both, (laughs) so hopefully it'll be okay. Um, also, that there wasn't a pylon, but I just thought I would read that no, one because no. it's a good point because we didn't talk about it in the episode. Um, that's what's up. The other is from our listener, Heidi, who writes, I've been an avid listener for years and greatly enjoyed your show. It's become a weekly tradition to get caught up on a long commute. My six-year-old daughter has a rare genetic disease called metachromatic leukodystrophy, or MLD. I hope I said that right. Each week, we travel to the University of Iowa for an experimental treatment to help slow the progression of the disease and hopefully improve the quality and length of her life. Children with late infantile MLD typically pass before the age of 10. This commute is four hours round trip, and listening to you makes the drive something I look forward to each week. 
Today, while driving home from the university, I listened to the episode on eponymous foods and behind-the-scenes mini, both of which struck on things from my own life. I studied Russian in high school and college. While in high school, I had the opportunity to travel to St. Petersburg and Moscow. St. Petersburg was amazing, and I clearly remember walking down the street when our tour guide pointed at this ornate green building and said, that's where beef stroganoff was invented. I snapped a picture of it, and as soon as I got home today, I bolted to my basement to dig it out and send it to you. This was in the infancy of digital photography, so I apologize that it's a picture of a picture. By the way, the picture looks fine. Uh, I was surprised to find out from the episode that this was likely not the precise location of its origin. Nonetheless, it is still the Stroganoff Palace, and by that virtue, worthy of note. I had hoped to try authentic beef Stroganoff while in Russia. I did not get the opportunity, but I did have several other amazing and rather interesting foods. The other food you mentioned, with which I have a personal connection, is Cap'n Crunch. I am originally from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which is one of and perhaps the only location Captain Crunch is made. I had to laugh at your Oops All Berries reference. Cedar Rapids' tagline is the City of Five Seasons, and this is often jokingly changed to the City of Five Smells. There are several factories, including Quaker Oats and Cedar Rapids, that are responsible for its unique and rather unpleasant aroma. We oftentimes joke that the only day Cedar Rapids smells good is on Sunday because this is Crunchberry Day. I'm not 100% sure if this was true or is still true today, but on Sundays, I do remember downtown smelling a little more pleasant. In addition to the crunch berries, my grandmother made dolls and puppets and was actually asked to design the captain, but she decided not to take on the commission. She later said she regretted this not only because of the cereal's eventual popularity, but also because she did not like the finished product. Had she designed it, no doubt the captain would look very different today. I sadly don't have any pets to send photos of, but I did take a photo of my daughter. She herself is making history by contributing to research on this treatment that will hopefully improve the lives of other children with MLD after her. We are taking her and her brothers to Disneyland in a few weeks, and we are so excited. She smiles so big when we talk about how she gets to go to the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique and get the royal treatment. Thank you for always providing the world with entertainment that is both inclusive and informative. You give me hope and joy often in the moments I need it most. Get me all choked up, Heidi. Um, I hope you guys have an amazing time in Disneyland, by the way. Your daughter is adorable, and she is going to be so cute once she is coated in all of the bibbidi-bobbidi glitter. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That is one of my favorite things. Even though I am very openly not a big kid person, there is nothing better than seeing children like full glitter everything when they come out of there. It is so joyous. I love it. Um... This also gave me a hilarious flashback. Tracy, I don't think you moved to Atlanta in time to experience the delight of the Frito-Lay factory that used to be in Chambly. No. Where the Lowe's is in that Brookhaven-Chambly kind Mm -hmm. of crossover area Mm -hmm. used to be the Frito-Lay factory. And I used to work very near there, and it would smell like chili cheese Doritos some days. Mm -hmm. And I did not find that gross at all. I loved it. Um, So (laughs) thinking about a town that smells like um, oatmeal and sugar cereals being made all the time actually sounds pretty good to me. But uh, Heidi, I wanted to thank you for this, because one, stroganoff. That might have been the building where it was invented. We don't know. You could say that. I think that's fine. Um, And again, I hope your trip is amazing 
Um, Disneyland is is one of the many places I love, love, love. I hope you eat all the Ronto wraps for me while you're there. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us as Missed in History on social media. And if you haven't subscribed, you can do that on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut. Every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org.